Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib. I'm really excited about today's episode because we got a chance to speak to a member of my team, Emma Ford. Emma is a holistic nutritionist and has gone through a journey of healing herself and her own gut and her own health challenges from a time when she was much younger, when she was 14 or 15 years old, a lot of this began for her. And in her journey, she discovered the importance of having a well-functioning gut and optimal nutrition to support her overall health. And she joined the team a little over a year ago as our holistic nutritionist at Health Upgraded. We're really excited to dig in today on the topic of nutrition to help upgrade vagus nerve function. We dig in a little bit into Emma's story, and then we get really deep down into the weeds with regards to specific foods, specific supplements, specific tools that our body requires to help optimize our nutrition and vagus nerve function. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. And we'll catch you on the next one. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade podcast. So we're super excited to have with us today, Emma Ford. Thanks for joining, Emma. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. We're really excited to initially just hear your story. How did you become a holistic nutritionist? What was the pathway, the journey that brought you to where you are now Let's share that and then we can talk a little bit about vagus nerve nutrition and how to optimize it as we go forward. Yeah, I'll try to keep this short and sweet. It's a long story, but I'll hit on the high points here. So way back when I was around 14, 15 is really when I started to see chronic digestive symptoms surface for me. And it ended up being a 15 year journey with this. My symptoms mostly related to constant bloating, altered bowel function, abdominal pain, especially after eating. But also with that was debilitating fatigue, brain fog, really painful menstruation and cycles. And what felt like a lifelong journey with clinically diagnosed anxiety and in my 20s, mild depression. So after kind of going through the conventional medicine space and not really feeling aligned with my physician's recommendations at the time, I decided to seek out alternative care on my own by visiting a naturopathic physician. And this really flicked a switch for me as it was after that first visit that I was shortly diagnosed with celiac disease and this naturopath through blood testing found a systemic candida overgrowth. So those were really insightful. However, unfortunately, I was 15 at the time and I didn't take them seriously. So I continued to eat gluten. I didn't do anything about the candida. And then fast forward to 2016 in my early 20s, I was still navigating these chronic symptoms. And then the anxiety I was experiencing was quite severe and daily interrupting my daily life. So I did find that dietary interventions to be very supportive and stabilizing. So I omitted gluten, finally focused on quality of food. And that led me to study holistic nutrition from there. And what was fascinating was during my two years of study, I was actually the sickest I had ever been. 
And I was working with a handful of different practitioners without true relief at the time. I was also working in Toronto at a very busy nightclub on the weekends to pay for my tuition. And so no sleep, that kind of atmosphere really looking back contributed a lot to the worsening of my symptoms. And when I graduated, I finally received a SIBO diagnosis, which, you know, really ties into the vagus nerve and makes sense with the anxiety worsening and all of that. So Finally, when I graduated school and received my designation in 2019, I used myself as my first case, really, and I started to enroll immediately in functional medicine trainings with other practitioners, learning about functional lab tests and how I could interpret and apply those insights into my case and future clients. And I developed my first protocol and was able to eradicate my SIBO for good. And really, I had fantastic outcomes and remission of all my symptoms, including anxiety. And so that's when my private practice, Gut Rooted, was born. And my story, in essence, is really that my pain became my purpose. That's a heck of a story. You know, it's interesting that you say things started when you were about 14 or 15. I always wonder because of all the work that we've done, I wonder, was there something that happened to you around 14 or 15 that might have triggered this? Did you have either a gastrointestinal bug that lasted for a bit longer than normal? Did you have you know, a traumatic event occur in your life? Did something happen that altered your trajectory from being, you know, I would assume before that you would have described yourself as very healthy. And at that point, there was sort of that inflection I mean, can you think of anything that happened at that time? Oh, absolutely. I love this question. I often reflect back and try to put those pieces together, honoring that holistic model and biopsychosocial model of health. And what I can kind of gather is a few things. First, I did some genetic testing and I found that I have one copy of the celiac gene. And so when I think about that kind of being one contributing factor. And then the epigenetics piece was I ate a terrible diet. I had a huge sweet tooth. I was eating a ton of processed foods. I was the person that would get those fast food coupons in the mail and I'd have them gone in a week, especially in my preteen and teen years. So I think the dietary portion was a huge catalyst for that. And then I had a lot of trauma in my early childhood from conception. My mother was in a relationship that she was under a lot of duress. It was an abusive relationship. And so even in the womb, I could only imagine the, you know, stress hormones that I was getting flooded with and kind of also being a C-section baby and not breastfed, I started off on the digestive back foot. So that gut microbiome was not seeded properly. And then I had a massive history of antibiotics from ages five to probably 17. I was a couple courses of year. And now looking at that research and seeing this massive study done where only one course of antibiotics can increase your risk of developing depression by 24% in one year. And if you have two courses in that same year, it increases that risk by 44%. So so looking at all of those pieces and seeing how all of those could have been contributors, I think, yeah, that's a great question. And it really goes to show kind of the piece of information that I've been talking a little bit about, but there are, in my opinion, as a clinician, there's four areas that we really have to look at as those stressors that can shift our health in any direction. And those are the psychological, meaning childhood trauma, the stuff that you experienced early on in life that created the lens through which you see the world, right? The scuffs on the lenses, the emotional stress, which is kind of that day-to-day -day financial relationship-based stress, kids, et cetera. 
And then we've got the physical. Are you moving? Are you active? Are you moving too much? Are you recovering well from a physical movement perspective? Muscle strength, muscle capacity. And then the big one, which is the biochemical. And the biochemical looks at microbiome. It looks at toxin exposure. It looks at antibiotic use. It looks at all of those pieces. And so these four areas need to be really looked at and addressed. And that's a really clear understanding of, and really, Emma, it was your holistic approach to understanding that there were multiple contributing factors. It wasn't the genetics period, right? Their genetics played a role. They were a contributing factor. The C-section was a contributing factor. The antibiotic use was a contributing factor. And each one slowly and surely raised the level of stress that your body was under until it finally came to a head. So really interesting that we brought it down that way and broke it down into that very clear thing there. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah. I want to have a couple things to say. One is that trauma that you experienced in utero, there's a lot of data that's coming out really just within the last five years or so talking about the epigenetic effects that stress in utero has on developing infants and developing fetuses and the role that DNA methylation and small interfering and micro RNA expression have on you as you grow. I want to ask whether or not, and I hate using you as a test case here, but I appreciate your willingness to do that. Do you have any other symptoms that maybe you wouldn't necessarily think of as either cognitive or emotional or gut health related, anything associated with, you know, asthma, breathing, allergies, sleep problems, I guess that's more neurological, any other things that you would say, you know, that you're dealing with that maybe other people aren't? Mm, I don't have a history of anything bronchial or to do with asthma or anything like that, luckily. And sleep was a problem, but I think because of the work I've done on my gut and the lifestyle I lead, the dietary lifestyle, mind-body stuff, luckily I'm not experiencing those. But through, and I'm not sure if I'm capturing this correctly from what you said with the methylation, but through the same genetic tests that I did, I do have mutations in my MTHFR genes. I actually have two mutations. And so I think that relates to me only having a 30% detoxification capacity. And so I work tirelessly and I take my detoxification very seriously through targeted daily supplementation and also sweating weekly. I use a lot of heat therapy and cold exposure. And I've noticed a massive difference in my detoxification in that regard. And I also don't drink alcohol very infrequently, maybe once a quarter. So that's really changed how I feel day to day with those kind of other symptoms. Yeah. Sure. Alcohol has a tremendously suppressive effect on your parasympathetic nervous system. It's really remarkable how it affects everything from your sleep to your gut, to your fatigue levels, health. I know that it's part of society and we all occasionally will fall off the wagon, but uh, to the extent that you can keep it to a minimum and not just a minimum when you're drinking, you know, have only one or just, you know, one drink when you're doing it, but do it very infrequently because even one drink can have a very strong suppressive effect on your parasympathetic. So a very interesting. Uh, I have an interesting uh, anecdote there or anecdote for you. I had a patient, somebody I've worked with for years that kind of fallen off the wagon and to the point where she was having a couple of glasses of wine every night for a couple of months. And I challenged her to 
we're recording this in April 2023 for those who are listening. And I said, why don't you try doing everything really, really well for one month? I, like I'm challenging you to do this for one month. And on the first night she did it, her HRV levels on her RRing went from a low 20 to 63 on the first day. It was a ridiculous change. I never would have expected that. I'm sure it's not a normal occurrence, but even after she wasn't able to sustain the 60s, but she got her HRV up into the 30s and 40s from a low 20 number. And just the fact that it's going up for a short period of time shows the effect of things like alcohol and sugar that can have that effect on suppressing parasympathetic nervous system activity and vagus nerve activity. No question. Alcohol is a very you know, challenging thing for your body to manage, for sure. No question. So why don't we take a bit of a step into your expertise, which is holistic nutrition. And you're looking at health from a holistic perspective. And that's obviously something that we are a big fan of here at Health Upgraded and on the podcast. Why don't we lead into the food side of things? Why don't we lead into gut function and start talking about some of the foods that might create a bit of a challenge to the gut to begin with? What are some common foods? You've brought a couple of them up, but some that might create a bit of a challenge for the microbiome and for gut lining to not be functioning optimally. Mm -hmm. I think I would preface that by first talking a little bit about food allergies and sensitivities, and that's definitely bio-individual to the person and can change. I don't like to run food sensitivity panels in my practice, especially if I suspect there is any sort of either dysbiosis and or intestinal permeability going on with that person, which can create those kind of false, but I guess starting with gluten and talking about gliadin, that protein found in gluten that affects the intestinal barrier function by causing the release of that inflammatory protein zonulin, which can open up those cells and cause those gaps and allowing those particles to inappropriately leave the gut and go into the systemic circulation where they don't belong, creating that immune response and then setting the stage for systemic inflammation. And there's also some mounting research to suggest that gliadin or gluten can cause this inflammatory markers of intestinal permeability to be elevated in everyone, regardless of if you have celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I think what I was reading was just the time is different. So if you have a true gluten intolerance or celiac disease, it could be a matter of days and even weeks for some people with severe celiac, but that permeability can happen for as little as a few hours for people who aren't sensitive. And I think there's so many caveats and nuances there when it comes to, you know, is it European wheat? Is that are hybridized wheat in North America. But regardless, I think when we're thinking about someone who has a gluten sensitivity and talking about intestinal permeability, depending on the severity of that, which you'll find through testing, an individual might want to also avoid grains and what's called gliadin cross-reactive foods, which I found really interesting and came across only in the last few years, which are foods that the immune system recognizes as a similar molecular structure to gluten, and then will have that same inflammatory and immune response to that food. And one of those, as we're talking about sensitivities, is cow dairy. It's a gliadin cross-reactive food because the protein casein found in dairy is similar to gliadin, which is found in gluten. And so it's estimated that at least half of people who have gluten intolerance or celiac disease are also sensitive to dairy. And so that's something that I always recommend people to experiment with if they're not working with a practitioner. And then the last category I can think of is the obvious refined sugar and refined carbohydrates, which 
can feed those opportunistic organisms like Candida albicans, for example, that have been implicated in contributing to intestinal permeability. So one question I, you just hit on at the end that I've always had about the general fact, scientific fact that when you ingest protein, mm -hmm. typically there is a modest temporary rise in systemic inflammatory levels. If you eat fats, virtually no increase in inflammation. Whereas with carbohydrates, you see a very strong high and extended increase in systemic inflammatory cytokines and circulation. Question is, is it dependent on what type of carbohydrate you're eating? Because lots of carbohydrates, especially in today's processed foods, actually have wheat gluten included in that food. So it's not really a pure carbohydrate in the sense of you're also having other you know, proteins and other things that are included in that. It's just a high carbohydrate content food that they're testing. So the question I have is, if you were to categorize different carbohydrates by their source, not by whether they're a simple carbohydrate or a complex carbohydrate, but to separate them out by different types, I would assume that you would find that some are very strong drivers of inflammation and some are not. And for example, does rice have the same level of inflammatory drive that pasta would have or bread? And by the same token, do potatoes have the same type, you know, certain starches, do they have the same level of inflammatory response? My suspicion is not, but love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. And I think from what I gather, I really think first, it depends on the bioindividuality of the person and their gut microbiome's function, their metabolic function, all of that comes into play. And I really only kind of think about the refined part, like how refined is that food? How heavily processed is that food? So with white rice, there's different quality, there's different types. Some white rice is a couple molecules away from plastic because it's so processed. And so thinking about like really being mindful of the source, my opinion, even when we think about a potato and how that's raising inflammation, potatoes are one of those monocrops that is sprayed heavily with pesticides like glyphosate. And so if you're getting an organic potato, I don't know, but I'm thinking that's going to play a difference in that inflammatory reaction to that person. If it's, you know, not sprayed with pesticides versus the latter, which is going to cause that inflammatory kind of response. And so I think there's a few things I would be thinking about when it comes to answering that. But from what I gather, it really comes down to the quality of the food that you are eating and then your digestive capacity and stomach acid being a huge one, which is we are notoriously as a, you know, I would even dare say it's an epidemic of how low our stomach acid levels really are because of what's affecting them. So it's stress aging, certain medications are all impacting our stomach acid levels, which we need to properly digest protein. So that also is something I think about too, when I think about how malabsorption or not being able to digest your food properly comes into play and in creating that inflammatory picture. We can bring that back to vagus nerve dysfunction a lot, as <laughs> yeah. well, right? Because the digestive tract is so heavily rooted in vagus nerve innervation and specifically the stomach. We're getting the pyloric branches of vagus nerve affecting stomach's ability to produce that stomach acid, right? So from the digestive sequencing side of things, when we smell food, when we taste food, 
we have this initial reaction within our mouth, within our sensory organs in our face to go up to the brainstem and to the brain. And we sense that food. We taste specific molecules, the sweetness, the saltiness, the fatty content. And that processing then signals via the vagus nerve down to the stomach and the pancreas and the intestines to say, hey, we have food coming in. We need stomach acid to be produced. We need the digestive enzymes to be produced in the pancreas. We need peristalsis to begin within the intestines. And if the vagus nerve is not functioning well because it's under a ton of stress or over time it's broken down and it's just not capable of doing what it was once capable of doing, then we're not going to get those signals down to the digestive organs effectively. And we're going to have a condition like a hypochlorhydria, which is low stomach acid occurring. And that then predisposes us to bacteria being able to make their way into the small intestine, leading to SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or constipation, right? Where we're not able to get that movement occurring through the peristaltic motion of the intestines. Vagus nerve involvement is heavily linked to digestive dysfunction and where the gut goes, the vagus nerve is often heavily linked to. You know, it's it's interesting because there's been some recent work done looking at alternative ways to activate the vagus nerve. Obviously exercise and deep breathing techniques and even things like gargling are things we've talked about a lot. There's electrical stimulation, but there's a group that is looking, looking at modulating the acid levels in the stomach as a way to activate the vagus nerve in a similar way, to literally trigger the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. But the way they do it is to actually introduce a basic solution. So to reduce the acidic level in the stomach and as a result, activating the vagus nerve. They're talking about you know, different chemicals that can do that, one being sodium bicarbonate. And it's funny because I was actually having a conversation at one point with a neurologist in the headache field who I was sharing this information with, and she stopped me and she said, wait a minute, what's the primary ingredient in Alka-Seltzer? And I said, well, I think it's aspirin and sodium bicarbonate. And she said, I think so too. And we looked it up and sure enough, that's what makes it fizz. And I said, what made you think of that? And she said, because she has some patients who had literally tried everything to manage their chronic headache conditions, things like triptans, things like CGRP antibodies, modulating diet. They had really done quite a lot. And they had hit upon using Alka-Seltzer as the one thing that knocked out their migraines, knocked out their headache problems. And she thought that that was a group of people that would also probably respond to vagus nerve stimulation for treating headaches and migraines. And the reasoning was through what we were talking about, the idea that activation of the vagus nerve can be done through this introduction of the basic solution. And I wonder whether or not that's one of the benefits of Alka-Seltzer is this being a, a vagus nerve stimulant. I imagine that there is that mechanism there, and I'm sorry to kind of cut it off the conversation here, but I'm imagining that there is a sensory cells within the stomach that are monitoring what the pH is. And what's happening is when the pH of the stomach becomes higher, when the solution in the stomach becomes more basic, we have this signal being sent via vagus nerve up and back down saying, hey, it's too basic in here. We need to up the acidity content. We need to increase this flow of information to the stomach so that the beta cells in the stomach can start to produce hydrochloric acid, HCL, so that the acid content can come up. And I imagine there's a mechanism 
pointed to there as to how vagus nerve becomes stimulated by supporting or adding a basic solution to the stomach and having almost a feedback loop to create that acidic environment again. Fascinating. Fascinating. I know for me, just speaking from the eye, this is bringing up in my SIBO journey. I actually have an autoimmune version of SIBO where my motility is impacted because I actually having hypochloridia at the time I was in Mexico and I ate a street taco with my friends. No one else got sick. I was violently ill. I had to cut my trip short. And from that taco, whatever was in there, I actually developed that post-infectious IBS picture, which led to SIBO. And now my motility is impacted. I've been doing a lot of vagus nerve work and it's gotten miles better. I don't have to be on a motility or prokinetic every day, which is awesome. But I kept relapsing with SIBO in my journey. I relapsed about three times. I would eradicate the bacteria and it would come back. And I was a baby practitioner, a new practitioner at the time. And I just decided to invest in studying under Dr. Narala Jacoby, who is a SIBO expert, coined the SIBO doctor for a practitioner training. And that was really insightful and really led me to the vagus nerve being a massive driver for me in terms of continually relapsing with SIBO and thinking about it's not enough to just eradicate the bacteria. You have to really know that. Why is it proliferating? Why is it overgrowing? And in my case, it was a mix of motility and chronic stress that was unmanaged and unchecked and impacting my nervous system and vagus nerve. So fascinating work. I am endlessly fascinated by the vagus nerve. And so this is a perfect dream to be speaking to both of you. I love it. Let's take a step into, we talked a little bit about the foods that trigger an inflammatory reaction. And I think we've lost JP, but I'm sure he'll be back in a moment. Why don't we get into the foods that cause or that we want to start to repair intestinal permeability a little bit because intestinal permeability or hyperpermeability, leaky gut as we call it, is heavily involved in the inflammatory reaction and triggering of vagus nerve dysfunction. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of the foods that we can use to help support the gut and support gut lining and even the microbiome a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think about first, so there's some of them are quite popular as the guts become quite trendy, but I think for sure using food as a foundation is imperative when we want to think about supporting the health of our gut microbiome and therefore the health of many other organs and systems in the body. And these are really going to be gut brain foods to include. And perhaps I'll talk about the ones to avoid. And the first would be fermented foods. So these will contain those live microorganisms, aka probiotics, that confer those health benefits to us, the host, while directly supporting the gut microbiome where it's estimated 90 to 95% of serotonin is made. So that gut brain piece. Fermented foods can be things like kimchi, which is the actually most dense source of probiotics or live microorganisms per cup. Kimchi, sauerkraut, kefir, fermented milk, tempeh, fermented soy, miso, and yogurt. And if you're buying yogurt, you want to just make sure it has the active cultures on the label. The second would be essential fatty acids for sure. We are so deficient in these in North America via our diet. 
standard North American diet. So essential fatty acids like EPA and DHA from omega-3s especially, these are an essential nutrient for the brain and nervous system. And they're essential because our body doesn't make them. So we need to get them from our diet. They also have a long list of benefits along the lines of lowering inflammation, protecting cell membranes, improving cognition and memory, supporting mood and the health of our gut microbes, the beneficial ones. And so the best sources or bioavailable sources will be animals. So wild caught salmon, mackerel, sardines, but also there are some mindful amounts in walnuts, soybeans, chia, and hemp seeds. I also think about polyphenols as another one that aren't talked about enough for gut health. And these are plant compounds that act as antioxidants to protect our cells, like our neurons, even our brain cells from damage and stress. Any kind of plant food you eat contains some, but some really rich sources would be olive oil, green tea, cacao, and berries. So those are my top three. And then fourth would be prebiotic foods. So these are fiber rich foods, but these fibers selectively and specifically feed those beneficial microorganisms in our gut. So this would be oats, Jerusalem, artichokes, asparagus, garlic, onions, and resistant starch found in cooked and cooled white rice or cooked and cooled potatoes. Those would be my inclusion foods. And then thinking about what we can limit or avoid would be refined sugar, which can compromise the function of our gut by overloading it and affecting things like digestion, immune cell formation, and serotonin production. And then refined sugar was also found to suppress the activity of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is really beneficial, obviously, to a properly functioning brain and levels are notoriously low in individuals with depression. So refined sugar, refined vegetable oils and fats, so canola oil, grapeseed oil, sunflower, sesame, corn, margarine, highly inflammatory for the gut and therefore the brain as well. Yeah, great list there for anybody who needs to go back, listen to that list. It really points to things we want to have and things we want to avoid. And I really want to harp on that seed oil piece, the omega-6s, the omega-6 content of these refined seed oils, vegetable oils, canola, etc. Not something that is generally out there in the public eye, but it's something that needs to be brought to our attention. A lot of foods that many people are eating are heavily laced with these omega-6s, heavily laced with these inflammatory oils and inflammatory compounds that essentially create an entirely inflammatory reaction at the gut level. And that transcends throughout the entire body, right? It'll go to the brain, it'll go to all the other organs, and it'll link to metabolic dysfunction and liver dysfunction and just decrease your ability to function at a high level. And speaking of that, I want to look at a little bit on mitochondria. I think this is a really important piece and feeding the mitochondria is really something that we need to do a lot better. We don't have a great diet for for that as a standard American, standard North American style diet. So why don't we talk a little bit about the mitochondria, what it kind of is, just a brief overview. We've talked a lot about the mitochondria on the podcast, but what are some of the best foods that we can utilize to support mitochondrial function and mitochondrial health? Hmm. I can hop into the foods. <laughs> one, one, of, one of my favorite topics is mitochondria, but I'd love to hear about what foods would be, would be beneficial. Yes, absolutely. So as a whole kind of high level, adding a diverse intake of plant foods, so lots of color into your daily diet 
is ideal as a starter, as a foundation, these plants will be full of antioxidants and polyphenols and other phytonutrients, which nourish your mitochondria. Eight to 12 servings of fresh vegetables, fruits, beans, nuts, seeds, every single day is a good aim. Now, a lot of us aren't reaching that. So leaning on some of these top foods when we think about mitochondrial health could be another route. The first would be foods rich in ALA, alpha lipoic acid. There was one study on female mice where a combination of ALA, CoQ10, and vitamin E had an increase in the expression of mitochondrial protein and reduced oxidative damage. And there was a small human trial reflecting similar results. And so those foods would be beets, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, carrots, really high source in organ meats, and also some found in tomatoes. Foods rich in B vitamins, of course, the different B vitamins all play a crucial role or key role in mitochondrial function and energy production and a deficiency in any of these B vitamins could contribute to dysfunction. So meat and organ meats, you'll see hear me talk about this a lot because most nutrient dense food we know of is organ meats. Also some found in nut seeds and bee pollen and bee propolis also is a source of B vitamins. Foods rich in carnitine as well. So the nutrient that is crucial for beta oxidation or the breakdown of fatty acids into energy. Carnitine aids in the transfer of ACE-CoA, the end product of fat breakdown that enters into beta oxidization and which the Krebs cycle uses to create ATP energy across those membranes. Asparagus, beef, chicken, these are some great sources Also green tea. So that active compound found in green tea, EGCG, is an antioxidant that also will support mitochondrial biogenesis. Foods rich in CoQ10. So obviously it's best to supplement CoQ10 because there isn't a lot found in foods. Organ meats would be the first and foremost. Eggs, oily fish, olive oil, lentils, soybeans, and then some found in sesame seeds. Also selenium, so the right balance When we have the right balance, selenium protects against oxidative stress. You don't want too much or too little. Brazil nuts is the most notable source. And then chicken, eggs, and pork. And then, yeah, just plenty of colorful fruits and vegetables, really. It's like these foods are going to be those superfoods to really support mitochondrial health. But if you don't have a great foundation with just diverse intake of plant foods into your diet, then you might be starting off on the back foot. So get the foundation secure would be my first and foremost. Oh, and then spices, turmeric, obviously the active ingredient curcumin prevents mitochondrial dysfunction in the brain in some research. So that would be my top. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about the foods, I noted that none of them were high carbohydrate foods. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, no mitochondria are critical and I'm a big fan of tryptophan providing as much tryptophan as you possibly can, because tryptophan is the precursor for serotonin. And serotonin is obviously great for gut health and gut motility, as well as central nervous system, mood elevation, et cetera. But every cell in your body needs serotonin in order, because it's a precursor for melatonin. And melatonin is such an important antioxidant in maintaining the proper function of mitochondria. I won't say it's a panacea because nothing is, but it certainly is beneficial across a variety of different issues that we have with energy, with sleep, with risks of degeneration and mitochondrial function. You know, inflammation is so closely tied with oxidative stress and a loss of proper production of of ATP through oxidative phosphorylation and a heavy reliance on glycolysis, which is why you know, it's always a question of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Are you looking for sugary foods because you're inflamed? 
or are you eating sugary foods and that's causing inflammation or is it a feedback loop that's, you know, just, you got to break the cycle and you got to figure out how best to do that. I find exercise, sleep, and just a really good meal, a big, good meal with good foods in it is a great way to break that need, that desire for sugar. But I think some of the comments and some of the suggestions you made are really good ones. You know, CoQ10 is a really big one you need to add into your diet. I think everybody can use a, a supplement of that. Yeah. And I'm also really happy to hear organ meats being brought up quite often. It's something that in general, we don't talk about very much, or we don't even consider having as part of our meals, but it is by far, and you've mentioned this, the most nutrient-dense food when it comes to B vitamins, CoQ10, when you get really well-sourced organ meats as well. So I wouldn't go for generic, conventionally farmed organ meats. I would be very, very cautious, very careful, because a toxin burden that's present in beef liver, for example, is going to be significantly higher in conventionally raised versus grass-fed, grass-finished beef or whatever organ, whatever animal source it's coming from. So just be really cautious, really careful about the sourcing of that organ meat or meat in general. I'm a big proponent of ordering grass-fed, grass-finished meat only. I have a freezer full of steak and organ meats to prove that and, and ground beef and stuff as well. So just a wonderful piece of information to share there. So thank you for bringing that one up. Just the next step in that conversation, why don't we talk about acetylcholine? Because the vagus nerve uses acetylcholine as its primary slash only neurotransmitter. And we need to have a very good source of acetylcholine being present. Like I believe the stat is 80 to 90% of people are deficient in choline to begin with. And then we produce acetylcholine from acetyl-CoA via mitochondria and cellular oxidation that occurs on fats and carbs, and then choline that comes in from specific dietary sources. So why don't we talk about some of the foods that can help support acetylcholine presence and production in the body? Mm -hmm. I first think about, let's just talk about choline, that precursor, which dietary choline is required to produce acetylcholine and that important neuromodulator for the brain. And again, <laughs> the most relevant food source is going to be grass-fed quality organ meats. There's also some found in egg yolks, and you want to keep those egg yolks runny to have the most dense source. And then there's also some in sunflower and soy lecithin, which you'll want to source non-GMO. If you have a soy allergy, then going for the sunflower lecithin is just as good. You can also buy supplemental forms and just making sure they're non-GMO is going to be your best bet. So choline for sure. And then I think about B vitamins, specifically B1, so thiamine. So that plays a role in the citric acid cycle and that increase in the catabolism of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA to start that cycle, B5 too, so part of that coenzyme A, playing also a role in beta oxidization, and then B6 as well. So you can definitely get these from foods. Mostly you'll find them in animal proteins, pork, beef, also some in legumes like lentils, some in certain produce, but often people will want to supplement B vitamins. And this is something you'd have a conversation with your healthcare provider on. But if you are looking for a B supplement, my piece of advice would be to look for the activated forms. Simply means that each B vitamin will be in its bioavailable form. For example, B12 is often found in the inactive form, cyocobalamin and versus the methylcobalamin. 
which is one you, what you want to look for because most B vitamin supplements unfortunately contain that less desired inactive form, which means that it must be methylated or converted by the liver in order to become active and bioavailable for your body to utilize. Also thinking about as you age, your body's ability to convert B vitamins into their active forms becomes less and less. You're under stress on certain medications, caffeine, sugar, refined carbohydrates, those all heavily deplete B vitamins as well. And so supplementation might be the route to go if you find that you're in any of those categories. Yeah, big fan of beans in general, black beans, red beans, pinto beans, you name the bean, it's a good for you. High in B complex vitamins and really good to supplement your diet with that. Not heavy with carbohydrates, got good proteins and good vitamins. And a ton of fiber. Absolutely. Good for your gut. Good for you. I love beans as well. All legumes. <laughs> so we've spent a lot of time talking about central nervous system health, talking about mood, talking about brain fog and cognitive dysfunction, talked about energy. What about cardiovascular health? Because, you know, one of the things that I'm sure some listeners out there are going to, are going to think when they hear organ meat and eggs, they're going to think back and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, those are heavy in cholesterol, you know, cholesterol is bad. And, you know, I always, anytime somebody says, oh, I want to eat a low cholesterol diet, I think to myself, and sometimes I even say it, the cholesterol is not the enemy. You know, cholesterol is a friend to every cell in your body. What the problem is that if you have high sympathetic activation, high inflammation levels, then cholesterol can be a source of, of inflammation within the lining of the blood vessel and leading to atherosclerosis and otherwise. But what do you say when people talk about cholesterol and being concerned about the cholesterol level in organ meats and eggs and things like that? Obviously, there's so many benefits. What's your take on it? Yeah, I love this. And I think there's so much that we now know with the mounting nutrition science changing and ever evolving. And I think it's outdated. I totally agree with you to say that cholesterol from food has a direct impact on the cholesterol in our body or the harmful cholesterol. And I think currently the guidelines have changed due to that latest research showing that dietary cholesterol isn't harmful and doesn't contribute to increases in body's blood cholesterol levels. It is this natural substance that's produced in the body and found in those animal-based foods that we need to help build cells and produce certain hormones. And your body produces all the cholesterol it needs in the liver and intestines from fats, sugars, and proteins. And really, when you think about cholesterol health, what you want to limit and avoid instead of looking at those high cholesterol foods are things like trans fat, refined sugars, concentrated juices. So it's better to eat the whole fruit than it is the concentrated juice, which is shown to increase your cholesterol when you don't have that fiber in it. And then refined carbohydrates as well. So white bread, white pastas, baked goods made with these things. And then thinking about an inclusion mindset for cholesterol or heart health would be those good fats and omega-3s, which can improve the type of cholesterol and also the quantity of it in the body. High fiber and high protein foods specifically. So that's stabilizing blood sugar, supporting digestion and elimination for optimal aging and energy production beans, seeds, nuts, plant-based foods, and those quality sourced, so grass-fed or organic animal products are, are kind of what I would say would be my dietary interventions when thinking about heart health and cholesterol. Yeah, I'm going to have to fully agree with you there. And I think it's also really important to point for those who are looking at their cholesterol and are concerned about their LDL levels on blood work, just don't monofocus or hyperfocus just on the LDL number. We do need to look at HDL. We do need to look at triglycerides. If possible, get your doctor to help you test your ApoB, apolipoprotein B, because that is 
probably a, a not probably it is now proven to be a much more accurate set of markers to tell you about your risk of developing cardiovascular disease so it's not cholesterol is bad and ldl is bad because we also can't forget about the fact that without that dietary cholesterol we're unable to produce steroid hormones cholesterol is the source of all of our steroid hormones specifically cortisol and testosterone and estrogen and progesterone we're not able to even produce those if we don't have dietary cholesterol coming in effectively so if we're doing this low cholesterol diet we're actually hindering our hormonal health which is going to have long-term effects that we do not want so just a really important piece of information there don't hyper focus on the ldl do your best to look at your blood work or whatever testing you're doing in a holistic manner and do your research that it's not just LDL that is an issue. In fact, it's much less an issue than we initially thought years ago. Fantastic point. I want to end with a very brief but simple talk on what are your top three takeaways or top three things that people can do to improve their brain health and support their vagus nerve to function well from a dietary or holistic nutrition-based perspective. So it doesn't need to be supplements, but what are your top three takeaways that people should take from this call? Yeah, absolutely. I think we can get caught up in all of the superfoods and all of the high quality supplements, and they definitely have a place in this conversation on how you upgrade and support your gut and your brain health. But if you don't have the foundations, those six pillars of health in place, everything else is just not going to service you in the way that you want it to. And so thinking about those six pillars in my practice are sleep, stress management, nutrition, movement, connection, and your internal and external environment. What are you consuming? Not just ingesting from your diet, but what are you consuming around you? Who's around you? And also the biochemical kind of health of your gut microbiome. And so three things that I really think need more kind of stress upon would be stress management, pun intended. We just cannot escape from stress, emotional, physical, mental stress. And so prioritizing daily stress management through a mindfulness-based technique, ideally, or anything that communicates safety and pleasure to your body, so this will be different person to person, is key. My favorite is breath work or meditation. I love both of those. But if neither of those are work for you, find something that you enjoy. How can you cultivate more pleasure into your daily life? Pleasure is communicating safety to your parasympathetic nervous system, to your vagus nerve. So stress management for sure. Some of my favorite supplements for stress would be adaptogens. So ashwagandha, panax ginseng, ginkgo bilboa, or holy basil specifically. I love those. And then a B complex, an activated one for nervous system and brain health. The second would be eat a whole foods diet, a primarily whole foods diet. And I also want to think about, you know, nutrient density when it comes to your diet. And so this can have different meanings depending on who you ask, but in the functional nutrition space, I'm referring to the concentration of micronutrients like vitamins and minerals and amino acids or the building blocks and protein in a given food. And the human body requires at least 40 different micronutrients for normal metabolic function. And deficiencies in any of these nutrients can contribute to the development of chronic disease and even shorten our lifespan. So some of those most nutrient dense foods you want to think about including, this came from a 2022 study that was published in the Frontiers of Nutrition in March of 2022, would be organ meats, shellfish, 
fatty fish, lean fish, vegetables, so they didn't discriminate, of all kinds, eggs, poultry, legumes, red meat, and milk. And you'll see that eight out of 10 of the most nutrient-dense foods are animal products. So it makes sense that a nutrient-dense diet for everyone would be an omnivore diet. So that includes both plants and both quality animal foods, with 70% of your plate being the plants, and then that one-third being animals and then healthy fats for the latter. So a nutrient-dense diet would be my second recommendation. And then the third would be sleep. Don't sleep on quality sleep. If you can prioritize sleep by going to bed at a certain time every night, avoiding screens and food one hour before bed, hack your circadian rhythm, look at sunlight upon waking before any screens, make sure you're moving during the day, sleeping with an eye mask so that your body senses complete darkness and can actually make melatonin on its own. So those three sleep stress management and nutrient dense diet. And then two other supplements I think about outside of adaptogens and B vitamins would be sunflower lecithin. So this would be an allergen friendly choline supplement. We are 92% of North Americans are deficient in choline. We need to get it from our diet in order to make acetylcholine for healthy vagus nerve and optimal vagus nerve functioning. And then fish oils, because like we mentioned earlier, we're deficient. And so that triglyceride form is what you want to look for. So that will include EPA and DHA for brain function, vagus nerve function, and those anti-inflammatory actions for the body, including the gut. So that would be my key takeaways for what to focus on for gut, brain, and whole health. This was absolutely phenomenal. Such wonderful information, specific and very holistic in its approach. And so for anybody who's been listening and taking this stuff to heart, this has been basically a masterclass on how to improve your gut, brain, and vagus nerve health through nutrition. I think it's been absolutely phenomenal having you here. It is an absolute honor to have you as a part of the team at Health Upgraded and for you to share your knowledge with us today. We're very, very grateful. I'm going to speak on behalf of JP. It turns out he has a thunderstorm going on in Florida where he is, which knocked out his Wi-Fi a couple of times, and that's why he's unable to be on right now. He literally got knocked out twice, which is always fun, but, you know, Florida weather. But this is wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. You mentioned Gut Rooted. Where can people find you online to help or to follow you and learn more about your work? Yes, absolutely. And first, it was an absolute pleasure to be here. I am continually inspired and learning so much from you at Health Upgraded. So thank you for having me today and as part of the team. It's such an honor. And for me in my private practice, you can find me online. www.gutrooted.com is my website. And I'm very active on my Instagram page or my online community at gutrooted is where you can find me. And I love to connect with you with people. So please shoot me a message. Don't be shy and hang out with me over there. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your amazing knowledge. Have a wonderful day to everybody who's listening. Thank you so much for being here, for listening, and I wish you an upgraded day. Mm-hmm.